This episode contains graphic descriptions of deadly accidents that some listeners might find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome. Come gather around the campfire and let me tell you a story. Today, we're going to be talking about the perilous fate of the American space pioneers. Last episode covered the accidents and tragedies of the early Soviet space program, our rivals in the space race, and partners in space exploration today. This episode is going to cover the disasters of the American space program, including the deadly training fire of Apollo 1, the Challenger disaster that traumatized the nation, and the avoidable loss of Columbia. We'll also talk about how Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin nearly got stranded on the moon forever, and what President Nixon was prepared to do in the aftermath. Space travel is dangerous. It always has been, and it's likely to remain that way well into the future. But we just can't stop going. There's something in the human spirit that keeps us pushing to go further, faster, deeper, higher than we ever have. It was only natural that as soon as our technology allowed, our eyes would be set on reaching the stars, despite the danger and the overwhelming sense of unknown. America was shocked when the Soviet space program launched Sputnik 1, the first man-made satellite, into space on October 4, 1957. Not willing to be outdone for long, President Eisenhower created NASA soon after. The new agency's first major project was Project Mercury, with the goal of racing the Soviets to put a human being in space. The first group of NASA astronauts, the Mercury 7, was announced in 1959. But, as we discussed in more detail in Episode 10, the Soviets beat the United States to make Yuri Gagarin the first man in space in 1961. The U.S. needed to up their game to gain back any ground in the space race, and President Kennedy rose to the challenge, announcing just a month after Gagarin's launch that the United States would put a man on the moon by 1970 with the new project called Apollo. Another project, Gemini, was announced in 1962. The next group of astronaut candidates, called the Next Nine, was announced the same year. By 1963, there was one more group selected, NASA Astronaut Group 3, They really didn't go for consistency in the naming pattern, I guess. Every member of Group 3 had to be U.S. citizens, under age 34, under 6 feet tall, be test pilots or have over 1,000 hours of jet piloting experience, and have a degree in engineering or physical science. 720 applications were received, which seems low, but this was well before the internet. 490 applicants were determined to meet the full requirements. A NASA panel of mostly Mercury astronauts chose 139 men from that list and then narrowed it to 34. These top candidates were brought to an Air Force base and given extensive physical and mental tests. Apparently they were less invasive than the tests given to the Mercury astronauts, as the candidates reported that they were, luckily, quote, not subjected to the indignities endured by the original seven, unquote. But don't get me wrong, they were still intense. The applicants went through oxygen deprivation, were spun around in the dark, 
had ice water poured in their ears, and were hooked up to electrodes. One of the psychological tests was simply to give each man a blank sheet of white paper and ask what it showed. Reportedly, Michael Collins, who you might know as the getaway driver for the moon landing, told the psychologist that it was of polar bears mating. And he still made the cut, so I don't know what the wrong answer was. The remaining men were interviewed by the panel for a second time. Former astronaut Deke Slayton, clearly the overachiever of the panel and a recurring character in this episode, developed a point system to rank the applicants on academic achievement, pilot performance, and personal character. The panel chose 13 men and gave the names to the head of the program. But the head of the engineering department didn't like that number. 13 was unlucky, so Walter Cunningham was added, rounding out the group to what the press called the 14, for obvious reasons. As for what happened to the rejected 20 men, four of them would actually become NASA astronauts later. Michael Adams, who I'll mention later, was posthumously made an astronaut after a flight accident. Two others, Alexander Kratz Rupp and Daryl Cornell, would sadly be killed in an aircraft accident, unrelated to spaceflight. And perhaps the most shocking fate was that of John D. Yamnicki. He was a passenger on American Airlines Flight 77 on September 11, 2001, and was killed when the plane crashed into the Pentagon. On October 18th, the 14 new astronauts were announced to the public. It consisted of seven Air Force members, Buzz Aldrin, William Anders, Charles Bassett, Michael Collins, Don Isell, Theodore Freeman, and David Scott, four Navy members, Richard Gordon, Alan Bean, Gene Kerman, and Roger Chafee, one Marine, Clifton C. Williams, and two civilians, Walter Cunningham from the Marine Corps Reserve and Russell Schweikart, a Massachusetts Air National Guard captain. The 14 were slightly younger, taller, heavier, better educated, and had less flying time than the previous groups. Williams became the first unmarried astronaut in the Corps. All of them were white men, as you could probably guess. The Kennedy administration had pushed for the inclusion of the first African-American astronaut, and it seemed like that man was going to be Edward Dwight Jr., but racism eventually pushed him out of NASA altogether. After President Kennedy was assassinated, the presidential pressure for a black astronaut faded and wouldn't be realized until Guillaume Bluford flew in 1983. The men of Group 3 had plenty of tragedy and success between them. Ten would fly in space at least once. Seven would fly to the moon. Four would actually walk on it. And tragically, four members of Group 3 would die before they could make it to space. They started training immediately. They went through 240 hours of classroom instruction, the bulk of which was in navigation, orbital mechanics, computers, and geology. The geology class even had field trips across the U.S., which sounds fun. The men had jungle, desert, and water survival training, which sounds less fun, and involved being dropped off in the middle of Panama and the Reno Desert. Luckily, almost every single person I'm going to mention was a Boy Scout. The men made robes out of their parachutes and killed lizards and snakes for food. Then they moved on to training on equipment and simulators. And each member of the 14 had a special area of expertise. For example, Buzz Aldrin's was mission planning, and Michael Collins was extravehicular activity. In 1964, NASA suffered its first astronaut loss. Captain Theodore Freeman was an aeronautical engineer, Air Force officer, and test pilot, born in Haverford, Pennsylvania, and raised in Delaware. His family of seven were all in blue-collar work, 
that Freeman and his brother saved their pocket change to afford plane rides. He started working on planes and spent the money on flying lessons, and by age 16, he earned his pilot's license. He was an honor student, Boy Scout, and football player, and his high school principal later said of him, quote, Ted had all the qualities we would like to find in our boys. He was serious-minded and dedicated. He read all the books about aeronautics he could get his hands on, unquote. When Freeman graduated high school, he applied to the Navy, but was rejected because his teeth were crooked from a football injury. He fixed them up and was admitted the next year. He got his degree at the Naval Academy, then later a Master of Science from the University of Michigan. He married a woman named Faith Clark and had a daughter also named Faith, and he became a test pilot with thousands of hours and, of course, was accepted into NASA Astronaut Group 3 with a specialization in boosters. He said of his job there, quote, We don't look at this as dangerous work. It's about the most fascinating job I could imagine, unquote. Tragically, on the morning of Halloween, 1964, Freeman was flying a jet from one training facility to another. He was asked to loop around the runway again while trying to land to relieve air traffic. While doing this, a goose flew into the plexiglass canopy of the plane during heavy fog. The canopy shattered, and shards of glass were sucked into both engines, causing them to fail. Freeman could have attempted to land in the runway, but realized that he might crash into the military housing near the base, where several fellow astronauts lived instead. He turned away and tried to eject, but he was too close to the ground for his parachute to deploy, and he was killed on impact. Deke Slayton, the former astronaut from the selection committee, found his body at the scene. Freeman's wife, Faith, found out about his death when a reporter came to her house, which changed NASA protocol on how to inform families about accidents. His five astronaut teammates were his pallbearers, and the eulogy was simple. Quote, no eulogy is necessary in this service. Ted Freeman's life speaks for itself. Unquote. He was buried with honors in Arlington Cemetery, remembered as a hero that sacrificed his own life to protect hundreds of innocent people below. Four islands off of Long Beach, called the Astronaut Islands, were named for him and each of the Apollo 1 astronauts. Charles Arthur Bassett II was another Boy Scout, born in Dayton, Ohio in 1931, known as an aviation capital of the country. Like many of the astronauts and cosmonauts we've discussed, he loved model planes as a kid, and saved up money from part-time jobs at the airport to earn his pilot's license by 17. He went to college as an Air Force ROTC cadet, earned an electrical engineering degree, and joined the Air Force officially after graduation. He went to Korea but never flew in combat because it was late in the war, and became a test pilot when he returned. He married Jeannie Martin and had two children, and then, of course, became a member of NASA. Elliot McKay C. Jr. was born in Dallas, Texas in 1927, and he was say it with me, a Boy Scout, an Eagle Scout, in fact. He was also a varsity boxer and ROTC rifle team member in high school. When World War II came, he tried to enroll as an aviation cadet, but was rejected on a physical. So he went to college, got a pilot's license, and trained as a military officer at the Merchant Marine Academy. After he graduated, he worked on aircraft for General Electric, flew a private plane with his friend in his spare time, and met a secretary who he nearly killed in a plane crash, but later married. He also served in the Korean War and had three children. C was the oldest astronaut chosen for Group 3 at 35 and described his feelings on it, quote, Overwhelmed isn't the right word. I was amazed and certainly pleased. It's a very great honor, unquote. He road-tripped with Neil Armstrong to the training center in Houston, and he and Armstrong would also be chosen together 
as the first civilians chosen for spaceflight when they were picked as backup pilots for Gemini 5. C even saved the whole mission from the ground when he was given 24 hours to fix the fuel cells on the ship or the flight would be cut short. Bassett and C were chosen to be the pilots of a mission called Gemini 9, finally getting their shot at actually going to space. But on February 28, 1966, C and Bassett were flying in one jet from one training center to another, while the backup crew, Tom Stafford and Gene Certain, followed them in another jet. The weather was poor, foggy, rainy, and snowy. Both pilots were using their instruments to land instead of visuals. They overshot the runway and looped around to try again with a different kind of approach. Stafford, piloting the second craft, lost sight of C in Bassett's plane and went for an instrument landing again. Stafford was perplexed why C turned away to try a different kind of landing, possibly to beat the other plane to the ground, but it seemed odd. C had a reputation for being an almost too careful pilot. Stafford said to Seenan, quote, God damn it, where is he going? Unquote. C tried to land again, but hit the roof of the training building. The landing gear and the right wing were torn off, and the plane crashed into the parking lot behind the building. A witness said he, quote, heard a roar and saw a ball of fire, unquote. Both men were killed instantly. The scene was chaos. All four of the astronauts' IDs were with C and Bassett, so it was unclear who had been killed. Both bodies were thrown from the plane, and Bassett was decapitated. Ironically, and tragically, both of them died within 500 feet of the spacecraft they were supposed to pilot, which was being built inside the hangar. Stafford and Cernan had no idea what had happened to their close friends. Their fuel was running low, and they were mad that air traffic control wasn't responding to them. Then the controller asked him, quote, who was in NASA 901, unquote. Stafford told him it had been C. and Bassett. The head of the aircraft company met them on the runway and gave them the news. Stafford was reportedly distraught, but still managed the emergency scene on the ground until other teams arrived. Luckily, the 17 men working in the building had only minor injuries. If the plane had crashed a little bit lower, it likely would have destroyed both the Gemini spacecraft inside and could have killed hundreds of aerospace workers. And the moon landing may have fallen behind enough that the Soviets would have beaten us there. NASA set up a panel to investigate the crash and determined that pilot error was to blame. Deke Slayton, who in case you haven't noticed is the American equivalent of the recurring character Kamanian from last episode, called C's piloting old womanish, which Neil Armstrong and other colleagues pushed back against. Slayton later said he had been iffy about choosing C for Gemini at all, but had gotten, quote, sentimental and made a bad call, unquote, hoping Bassett was good enough to carry the mission for both of them. Armstrong said about the ruling, quote, I would not begin to say that his death proves the first thing about his qualifications as an astronaut, unquote. In the wake of the incident, Buzz Aldrin was pushed forward to fly Gemini 12, which helped him be chosen for Apollo 11, the moon landing, which would have been a major change in space history. The spacecraft was undamaged, so Stafford and Cernan made it to space just a week after the devastating crash. Both C and Bassett's names are on the Space Mirror Memorial in Florida and the fallen astronaut plaque on the moon. Now comes 1967, possibly the worst year in space history, if you're counting the number of deadly incidents. 
In addition to the death of Vladimir Komarov in the Soviet Union, the American space program lost six men in four different disasters, the most deadly and famous of which was Apollo 1. The crew of Apollo 1 was Gruss Grissom, who had been to space twice, Edward White, who had been once, and Roger Chaffee, who had never gone before. Don Isell was actually supposed to be the third pilot, but he dislocated his shoulder and needed surgery, so he was replaced by Chaffee. Virgil Ivan Gus Grissom was a small-town Indiana Boy Scout and model plane enthusiast, the classic pre-astronaut combo. He married his high school sweetheart, Betty Moore, and they had two sons. He joined the Air Force at the end of World War II, when he graduated high school, and re-enlisted to fly a hundred missions in Korea. He was nearly disqualified from NASA for having allergies, but he talked them into moving past that because there's no pollen in space, which sounds fair to me. He had a scary space flight on a ship called the Liberty Bell 7 when the hatch blew open during the water landing and he almost drowned waiting to be rescued. He flew one more time with Gemini before the Apollo 1 accident. Edward Higgins White II was a West Point grad actually a classmate of Buzz Aldrin, and an Air Force lieutenant colonel. Oh, did I mention he was a Boy Scout? He met his wife, Patricia, at a West Point game, and they had two children. In 1965, he became the first American to walk in space, and when he had to come back inside, he said, quote, I'm coming back in, and it's the saddest moment of my life, unquote. Roger B. Chaffee was the son of a former stunt pilot, who fell in love with aviation after his first flight at age seven. I'm not even going to mention what youth organization he was part of, but it rhymes with scoibouts. He was a talented engineering student and Navy pilot. He met his wife Martha on a blind date, and they had two children. Apollo 1 was supposed to be his first mission to space, and he was a communications specialist. The Apollo 1 flight, also known as AS-204, was intended to last as long as two weeks in space, and would have a TV camera inside the command module to watch the crew the whole time. The module itself was the subject of some controversy among the NASA staff. It was the largest and most complex module they had built, and had a large amount of flammable material inside, including netting and Velcro to hold tools. The design was approved by Joseph Shea, the Apollo spacecraft program officer, but the crew disagreed. Unlike the men in the Soviet space program that we've discussed, these guys were able to express their concerns without the fear of disappearing to Siberia and being edited out of photos. Grissom, White, and Chaffee took a photo jokingly bowing their heads in prayer and gave it to Shea with the message, quote, It isn't that we don't trust you, Joe, but this time we've decided to go over your head. Unquote. I can't tell you if the good Lord spoke to Shea directly, but he allowed the netting and Velcro to be removed. Unfortunately, this wouldn't be enough to protect them. The ship went through over 700 changes, frustrating the astronauts who were training with it. Gus Grissom even reportedly stuck a lemon on the ship, which for anyone who doesn't know is slang for something useless. Grissom said in a 1963 interview that, quote, well, in spaceflight we recognize that there's a great deal of risk. It's always going to be with us. The reason we believe we can accept this risk is that we've tried to plan as carefully as possible for any eventuality, unquote. He also said, quote, I suppose that someday we're going to have a failure. In every business, there are failures, and they're bound to happen sooner or later, unquote. A few years later, he said, quote, You sort of have to put that out of your mind. 
So you just plan as best you can to take care of these eventualities, and you get a well-trained crew, and you go fly, unquote. Unfortunately, January 27, 1967, was that sooner or later. The launch was planned for February 21st, so this was the home stretch. The test was what was called a plugs-out test, and was intended to see if the ship would work normally if it was no longer attached to power cables. The test was not considered to be especially dangerous, as any explosive pieces were disabled and there was no fuel inside. It was basically a dress rehearsal for the actual flight, with a countdown to launch and everything. The test started at 11 p.m. The three men were sent into the capsule in pressure suits and hooked up to oxygen tubes. There were a few mechanical issues as they were starting the countdown, as well as an odd smell, which Grissom described as sour buttermilk. An air sample was taken, but no cause was found, and the source of this was actually never solved. The hatch was sealed, and the oxygen level was increased to 100%, which would be a major factor in this case, similar to Valentin Bondarenko's accident in last episode. The communication systems were not working well, and Grissom said, quote, How are we going to get to the moon if we can't talk between two or three buildings? They paused the tests again to try and fix this problem, and the astronauts started running through their checklist again while they waited. Then there was a power surge, and a fire broke out in the capsule. Grissom yelled out, Hey! Fire! Fire! And Chafee says, We've got a fire in the cockpit. Seven seconds passed, and then someone yelled out a hard-to-make-out phrase that was something along the lines of, We've got a bad fire. Let's get out. Open it up. Someone cried out, and that was the last transmission. The flames and smoke burst out of the capsule, which made it hard to rescue the men. The rescue crew was also concerned that the fire would blow up nearby rocket fuel, killing everybody. A witness reported hearing the transmission from the crew, and quote, Then you heard the pad people try to rescue the crew. Then it starts to sink in. This is really bad, and we don't know how bad until we heard on the communications loop. We lost them, unquote. Eventually, the cabin broke up, and pressure was released, giving the flames even more oxygen. Carbon monoxide, smoke, and soot filled the cabin and the room. It took five minutes to open the hatch. When the smoke cleared, it was determined that the three men had followed the proper safety protocol, but they were all dead. Grissom and White had unstrapped themselves and tried to open the hatch, but the pressure was too great. Chaffee had stayed in his seat, trying to use the communication equipment as he was supposed to. Their spacesuits had melted, which meant that it took close to an hour to remove the bodies. Twenty-seven rescue crew members were treated for smoke inhalation, and two were hospitalized. Deke Slayton examined the scene, and an investigation was launched immediately to determine the cause of the accident. The final report came out three months later. The astronauts all had third-degree burns, but it was determined that their cause of death was from carbon monoxide when fire melted through their oxygen tubes. They all likely died within seconds of that final transmission. The accident was blamed on a combination of high oxygen and high-pressure environment, the sealed hatch cover, an unidentified ignition source related to the wiring and coolant system, combustible materials inside the cabin, and a failure of emergency preparedness. When the door needed to be opened, 
Grissom was supposed to release pressure through a valve while White opened the cover, but the vent was blocked by fire. This design was changed on later spacecraft. Unfortunately, some of the Velcro that had been removed had been reinstalled, and, as I talked about in Bondarenko's accident, pure oxygen environments make everything more flammable. As I mentioned in episode 10, it's widely believed that American scientists were aware of the dangers of pure oxygen related to fire, but believed it was the best choice anyways. Other astronauts and engineers have said that NASA didn't truly know the connection, so this is unclear. In general, though, it's usually thought that knowledge of Bondarenko's death probably wouldn't have changed the fate of Apollo 1, although, of course, there's no way to really know. The accident report took months to produce, not quick enough to save two Air Force men, William Bartley Jr. and Richard Harmon. Four days after the Apollo 1 accident, the two of them were killed in a pure oxygen environment in a space simulator, after a spark started a fire. The widows of Apollo 1 astronauts sent Bartley and Harmon's families letters of support. NASA's standards were overhauled. No more pure oxygen environments. Nylon suits were replaced with new melt-resistant and fire-resistant material called beta cloth, made of fiberglass and Teflon. Self-extinguishing systems were added to spacecraft, as well as extra insulation to electrical wiring. The hatches were changed to open outwards and be removable within five seconds. Joseph Shea, who had approved the module design, went into an alcohol and drug-fueled depression and resigned after refusing to take a leave of absence. NASA's chief flight director, Gene Krantz, gave a speech to Mission Control three days after the accident that became a famous part of the NASA mission statement. He said in part, Now from this day forward, Mission Control will be known by two words, tough and competent. Tough meaning we will never again shirk from our responsibility because we're forever accountable for what we do or what we fail to do. Competent will never again take anything for granted, will never stop learning. When you leave here today, you will write these two words, tough and competent, on your blackboard, and they will never be erased. They will serve as a constant reminder to the sacrifice of Grissom, White, and Shaffy. That's all. From this day forward, flight control will be known by two words, tough and competent. Tough means we are forever accountable for what we do or what we fail to do. We will never again compromise our responsibilities. Competent means we will never take anything for granted. Mission control will be perfect. When you leave this meeting today, you will go to your office, and the first thing you will do there is to write tough and competent on your blackboards. It will never be erased. Each day when you enter the room, these words will remind you of the price paid by Grissom, White, and Chaffee. These words are the price of admission to the ranks of mission control. Unquote. Apollo flight director Jerry Griffin later said of the tragedy, quote, Apollo 1 was a tragic event, and we lost three really good friends, but it may have saved the program. If we did something like that happen on the way to the moon, it probably would have ended, unquote. Grissom, White, and Chaffee's widows asked that they keep the name Apollo 1, even though they never went to space, and this was respected. The Apollo 1 mission patch was left on the moon as a tribute, and their names are on the fallen astronaut memorial as well. All three were posthumously given the Congressional Space Medal of Honor 
and the building was destroyed, and a memorial service was held every year with their families. The hatch from the spacecraft was put on display for the first time in 2017, with support from the astronauts' families. The next NASA tragedy came only nine months later, when Apollo program astronaut Clifton C. Williams was killed in October of 1967. Williams, from Mobile, Alabama, was another former Boy Scout and mechanical engineer who joined the Marines in 1954. He became a naval test pilot and then was chosen for Group 3. He entered the crew as the first bachelor astronaut, which seems like a great sitcom premise if anyone wants to take that up. But he found love with former water ski theme park performer Jane Elizabeth Lanchy, and they had two children, one of whom would be born eight months after Williams died. He was once asked what mission he would like to fly, and responded, quote, I'd like to go on every flight, unquote. On October 5, 1967, Williams was flying to visit his sick father when there was a mechanical failure. The controls jammed and his jet went into a spin in almost a vertical dive between pine trees. Williams tried to eject but was too low and was killed almost instantly. His astronaut pin and naval wings were placed on the moon in 1969 by his colleague and friend, Alan Bean, who also suggested a star being added to the Apollo 12 mission patch in Williams' honor, which was done. Michael Adams, from Sacramento, California, was the next NASA fatality, just a month after Williams' death. He joined the Air Force in 1950 and flew 49 combat missions in the Korean War as a bomber. He earned an aeronautical engineering degree, studied at MIT, and became a top test pilot. He worked on a practice moon landing program and then was chosen to be an astronaut in 1965. On November 15, 1967, he was flying an X-15 jet at 266,000 feet when he entered a severe spin and dive, although the mission control sensors didn't detect this. They didn't understand what was happening until Adams radioed mission control and said, quote, I'm in a spin, Pete, unquote. Another test pilot reportedly said, quote, that boy's in trouble, unquote. Say again, mission control radioed. I'm in a spin, Adams repeated. His wife and mother were escorted out of the control room viewing area where they had been watching. The pressure became severe, over 15 G, and the plane broke up in the atmosphere. His body was recovered with the wreckage of the plane soon after. Adams was granted his astronaut wings after his death for passing the height of 50 miles. The next tragedy was just a month after that. Robert Henry Lawrence Jr. was the first African-American man chosen to be an astronaut, but unfortunately would never make it to space. He graduated at the top of his high school class in Chicago and then got a degree in chemistry and became an Air Force pilot by age 21. A classmate described him, quote, He was gifted in every area. He was smarter and more efficient than the rest of us. He could dust me off in the basketball court. And oh yes, he could fly a jet fighter. Unquote. The next year, he married Barbara Kress, and by age 25, he was a pilot instructor and later earned a doctoral degree. He joined NASA and helped collect data in high-flying jets for the development of spacecraft. In 1967, he became the first black astronaut in the Corps. A reporter at the announcement asked if Lawrence would have to sit in the back of the spacecraft which he and the other astronauts laughed at. He told another reporter that he didn't believe his position was historic. He said, quote, It's another one of those things we look forward to in civil rights. 
normal progression, unquote. On December 8, 1967, when Lawrence was 31, he was flying as an instructor with a trainee, Major Harvey Royer. Royer made a mistake while trying a steep descent technique, and the plane hit the ground. It caught fire and skidded 2,000 feet. Major Royer, in the front seat, ejected successfully and was severely injured but survived. The second seat's ejection is slightly delayed, so the two seats don't crash into each other. But in this case, it made Lawrence eject sideways. He was killed instantly. His name was left off of the memorial plaque on the moon, as well as Space Mirror Memorial in Florida. It was said this was because he was not an official astronaut by the Pentagon standard and was technically employed by the Air Force, although several other men were included with equally unclear status. Many people believe his exclusion was purely racial. It wasn't until 1997 when he was finally added to the space mirror, but like Valentin Bondarenko from last episode, the moon plaque is missing his name. It's not quite as easy to change. In 1969, NASA flew its most famous mission. When you think of Apollo 11, you don't think of failure. It was one of our country's greatest successes. But when the launch to the moon was planned, President Nixon had a speech on standby in case Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins met an untimely fate after their liftoff, or worse, were stuck on the untouched moon with no chance of rescue. There is a lot to talk about with the moon landing, and I can't get to all of it today, but let me know if you want to hear a full episode on it in the future. Also, just as a fun fact, Buzz Aldrin's mother's maiden name was Moon. When the launch was being planned, Apollo 8 astronaut Frank Borman, who had worked with the White House before, called Nixon's speechwriter, William Sapphire, and warned him he better have a backup speech in case things went awry. The White House wasn't very worried about Michael Collins, who would stay in the spacecraft for the entire mission. But there was a real possibility that Aldrin and Armstrong could be stuck on the moon. Forever. If that happened, Mission Control would announce that they had to, quote, close down communication, unquote, with the men. Which is a pretty chill way to say, abandon your friends in an unknown celestial body where they'll slowly starve to death and their remains may stay in the moon dust for all of human history. When asked about the possibility of failure right before he left, Armstrong said, quote, That's an unpleasant thing to think about. We've chosen not to think about that at the present time. We don't think that's a likely situation. It's simply a possible one. At present time, we're left with no recourse should that occur, unquote. Michael Collins later said of his mission, quote, I've been flying for 17 years by myself and with others, but I've never sweated out a flight like I'm sweating out LEM now. My secret terror for the last six months has been leaving them on the moon and returning to Earth alone. Now I'm within minutes of finding out the truth of the matter. If they fail to rise from the surface, or if they crash back into it, I'm not going to commit suicide. I'm coming home, forthwith, but I will be a marked man for life, and I know it. Almost better not to have the option I enjoy, unquote. Sapphire, that speechwriter, explained that, quote, If they couldn't successfully lift off, they'd have to be abandoned on the moon, left to die there. These men would either have to starve to death or commit suicide, unquote. Then NASA would shut down communications. Nixon would call Aldrin and Armstrong's wives and then give his planned speech. The men would be given a symbolic burial at sea, obviously without their bodies, and their souls would be sent to, quote, the deepest depths, 
unquote. Which is ironic, considering they'd actually be stuck at the highest heights we've ever been to. Sapphire prepared the speech that read as follows, quote, Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery, but they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. These two men are laying down their lives in mankind's most noble goal, the search for truth and understanding. They will be mourned by their families and friends. They will be mourned by their nation. They will be mourned by the people of the world. They will be mourned by a Mother Earth that dared send two of her sons into the unknown. In their exploration, they stirred the people of the world to feel as one. In their sacrifice, they bind more tightly the brotherhood of man. In ancient days, men looked at stars and saw their heroes in the constellations. In modern times, we do much the same, but our heroes are epic men of flesh and blood. Others will follow and surely find their way home. Man's search will not be denied, but these men were the first, and they will remain the foremost in our hearts. For every human being who looks up at the moon in the nights to come, know that there is some corner of another world that is forever mankind." Unquote. When John F. Kennedy gave his most famous moon speech, we choose to go to the moon in this decade not because it is easy, but because it is hard. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. He not only said that we would be landing a man on the moon, unquote, by 1970, but also be returning him safely to Earth. On an untried mission to an unknown celestial body and then return it safely to Earth. As space historian Robert Perlman said, quote, for some people that is a throwaway, but it wouldn't be a success if they didn't return home safely, unquote. Now, we all know that they ultimately did, but there were a few close calls with the mission. They overshot their landing spot and landed with only 45 seconds left of fuel. Then there was another incident, which Collins later described as, quote, if they couldn't get off, they were dead men, and I was getting home by myself, unquote. After Aldrin and Armstrong went back inside their spacecraft, after their two and a half hours of being the first human beings to walk on the moon, they noticed something chillingly wrong. Aldrin would later explain that he, quote, gulped hard and said, I looked closer and jolted a bit. There on the dust on the floor on the right side of the cabin lay a circuit breaker switch that had broken off, snapped off from the engine arm circuit breaker, the one vital breaker needed to send electrical power to the ascent engine that would lift Neil and me off the moon, unquote. They realized that one of them must have snapped it off with their backpacks. They radioed to Mission Control in Houston, who tried to figure it out for several hours, but came up with nothing, which is definitely not the message that the moon men wanted to receive. Aldrin explained, quote, After examining it more closely, I thought that if I could find something in the LM, lunar module, to push in the circuit, it might hold. But since it was electrical, I decided not to put my finger in or use anything that had metal on the end. I had a felt-tip pen in the shoulder pocket of my suit that might do the job. Sure enough, the circuit breaker held. We were going to get off the moon after all. To this day, I still have the broken circuit breaker switch and the felt-tip pen I used to ignite our engines." Unquote. On later missions, a guard was installed over these switches to prevent it from happening again. Luckily, 
all three men returned home safely as heroes. The speech stayed unused. NASA had almost two decades without another fatality. Then came the space accident that traumatized an entire nation. Challenger. The mission had eight astronauts. Francis Dick Scobie, the commander, was a Vietnam aviator, an aerospace engineer from Washington State. Michael Smith, the pilot, was a Navy pilot, Vietnam veteran, and Marshall Scholar from North Carolina. Ellison Onizuka was an Air Force test pilot and former Eagle Scout from Hawaii and had gone to space once previously on the Discovery mission. Judith Resnick was a genius with a perfect SAT score and one of only three female electrical engineers in her class at Carnegie Mellon. She was the second American woman in space and the first Jewish woman in space. Resnick also flew on Discovery. Ronald McNair was the second African-American in space, having flown on a different Challenger mission, and was a nationally renowned laser physicist from MIT. He famously refused to leave the segregated library in South Carolina where he grew up when he was a child, and authorities relented. That library is now named after him. Gregory Jarvis was an electrical engineer and Air Force captain from New York State. And then there was Krista McAuliffe who was by far the most famous member of the group because she was part of the Teacher in Space program. McAuliffe was a teacher from Boston who taught at Concord High School with, quote, infectious enthusiasm, unquote, and a love of space from an early age. President Ronald Reagan intended for teachers to be sent to space as payload specialists who were civilians. They could then come back home and meet with students to help inspire interest in science and space. McAuliffe was also supposed to broadcast two short classes from space to the millions of children watching. The project was cancelled after this accident. The Challenger spacecraft had actually flown several missions before. This launch was delayed several times because of weather and issues with the hatch. The major issue with the ship was the two O-rings. These were rubber seals that were part of the rocket boosters, which had to deal with hot, pressurized gas from the fuel. During the safety review of the ship in 1971, engineers identified a possible danger if the O-rings failed and the gases burnt through the casings of the rocket. If it happened, they warned that, quote, time sending might not be feasible and abort not possible, unquote. Morton Theocol was a contractor with NASA who made the rocket boosters and the O-rings. The O-rings were considered criticality one, which meant if they failed, the entire ship would fail. But still, the problem was not addressed. Eventually, by 1985, they started a process to reinforce the O-rings with steel, but it wasn't completed in time for the Challenger launch. In October of 1985, an engineer called Bob Eveling wrote a memo titled, Help! that warned about the possible danger of O-rings and cold. The day of the launch was supposed to be very cold, about 30 degrees Fahrenheit or negative one degree Celsius. The spacecraft nor the O-rings were intended to work at this temperature. NASA and Theocol had a conference call about it where Evelyn confirmed that the ship was only approved to work in 40 degrees Fahrenheit and warned anything colder than that was, quote, no man's land, unquote. On a call the night before the launch, engineers reiterated that the O-rings may not seal properly in the cold. Theocol recommended the launch be postponed, but NASA disagreed. They believed that the secondary O-rings would be fine if the first failed, although this was against protocol. They had a second call without the engineers, just the NASA and Theocol management, where they decided the launch would proceed. That night, Abeling told his wife that the Challenger would explode the next day, and he was right. On launch day, the temperature was 
about 28 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 2 degrees Celsius. Ice had been continuously removed through the night, but the engineers were disturbed to see a ton of ice still left. The launch was postponed for an hour to melt, and then it went forward. The nation, including millions of schoolchildren, watched the Challenger launch live on television. Although they couldn't tell yet, both O-rings disintegrated. The backups had bent out of place and also failed. Hot gas leaked out of the ship. Metallic residue called slag had held back the gas for a little extra time, but wind shear eventually destroyed it. If it had held for just a minute longer, the disaster likely would have been averted. Mission Control told the crew they were, quote, go at throttle up, unquote, and Scobie responded, quote, roger. Go at throttle up, unquote. The audio recorded Smith saying, oh no, as they lost control of the ship. It was the last message Earth ever received from the crew. About a minute after the launch, the World Watch Challenger explode. The hydrogen and oxygen tanks on the ship broke and mixed, damaging the interior of the wing. The Challenger ship broke up at 48,000 feet. The vehicle engineers who are watching had initially been relieved as they assumed the failure would happen right at liftoff. So once that was over, they thought they had made it past the danger. When they saw the explosion, they knew what had happened. Mission Control locked down and shut off phone communication to preserve the accident data. The part of the ship that held the crew itself broke off from the ship in one piece and fell at an extreme speed and pressure. At least some of the crew members had survived the initial explosion, and four of their emergency personal egress air packs a supply of emergency oxygen had been activated. Scobie and Smith's were two of the activated packs, although Resnick or Onizuka had to have activated Smith's because it was behind him, a detail which would later stick out to other astronauts. Astronaut Mike Mullane later said, quote, Mike Smith's PAAP had been turned on by Judy or L. I wondered if I would have had the presence of mind to do the same thing had I been in the Challenger's cockpit, or would I have been locked in a catatonic paralysis of fear? There had been nothing in our training concerning the activation of a PAAP in the event of an in-flight emergency. The fact that Judy or L had done so for Mike Smith made them heroic in my mind. They had been able to block out the terrifying sights and sounds and motions of Challenger's destruction, and had reached for that switch. It was the type of thing a true astronaut would do, maintain their cool in the direst of circumstances." Unquote. Smith had also adjusted switches next to him before the cabin fully detached. It's unknown if the cabin depressurized during the fall, which would have sent all the crew members into unconsciousness. But the cabin hit the ocean at 207 miles per hour, killing anyone who had survived the fall. In the aftermath of the crash, President Reagan postponed the State of the Union and gave a speech written by Peggy Noonan that's considered one of the greatest speeches of all time. It read in part as follows. Nineteen years ago, almost to the day, we lost three astronauts in a terrible accident on the ground. But we've never lost an astronaut in flight. We've never had a tragedy like this. And perhaps we've forgotten the courage it took for the crew of the shuttle. But they, the Challenger 7, were aware of the dangers. But overcame them and did their jobs brilliantly. We mourn seven heroes. We mourn their loss as a nation together. The families of the seven, we cannot bear as you do the full impact of this tragedy. But we feel the loss, and we're thinking about you so very much. Your loved ones were daring and brave, and they had that special grace, that special spirit that says, give me a challenge 
and I'll meet it with joy. They had a hunger to explore the universe and discover its truths. They wished to serve, and they did. They served all of us. We've grown used to wonders in this century. It's hard to dazzle us. But for 25 years, the United States space program has been doing just that. We've grown used to the idea of space, and perhaps we forget that we've only just begun. We're still pioneers. They, the members of the Challenger crew, were pioneers. And I want to say something to the school children of America who are watching the live coverage of the shuttle's takeoff. I know it's hard to understand, but sometimes painful things like this happen. It's all part of the process of exploration and discovery. It's all part of taking a chance and expanding man's horizons. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. The Challenger crew was pulling us into the future, and we'll continue to follow them. We don't hide our space program. We don't keep secrets and cover things up. We do it all up front and in public. That's the way freedom is, and we wouldn't change it for a minute. We'll continue our quest in space. There will be more shuttle flights and more shuttle crews. And yes, more volunteers, more civilians, more teachers in space. Nothing ends here. Our hopes and our journeys continue. There's a coincidence today. On this day 390 years ago, the great explorer Sir Francis Drake died aboard ship off the coast of Panama. In his lifetime, the great frontiers were the oceans, and a historian later said he lived by the sea, died on it, and was buried in it. Well, today, we can say of the Challenger crew, their dedication was, like Drake's, complete. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us by the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them, this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Thank you. As you probably noticed, Reagan includes a little bit of a dig at the Soviet space program in there with the whole cover-up thing, which is a classic Reagan move right there. There was a memorial three days after the crash with 6,000 NASA staff members and 4,000 guests in attendance. The Coast Guard and the Department of Defense did the largest surface search and rescue mission they had ever done to recover the seven crew members' remains and much of the ship. Debris continued to wash up for a decade after the crash. Ellison Onizuka's soccer ball was also found and later brought to the International Space Station and then given to Onizuka's Children's High School. The body of Gregory Jarvis actually became lost at one point, and astronaut and naval officer Robert Crippen rented a fishing boat out of his own pocket and searched for it until it was found. NASA administrators dodged the press after the disaster, opening up the public to wild speculation. Conspiracy theories popped up that NASA had pushed for the launch date because Reagan wanted to mention the launch in the State of the Union, although there's no evidence that that was the case. A presidential commission was formed to investigate, including Neil Armstrong and Sally Ride. They confirmed that the O-rings had failed, and NASA and Theocol had known of the danger. Committee member Richard Feynman made a televised demonstration of O-ring material in ice water and said, quote, For a successful technology, reality must take precedent over public relations, for nature cannot be fooled, unquote. NASA redesigned the solid rocket boosters and created a new quality assurance and safety office, 
Morton Theocol lost $10 million. Unfortunately, this wasn't enough to stop the next NASA disaster in 2003. Studies have also been done on the impact of the trauma on schoolchildren. There had been plans to send many different civilians into space, similarly to Kristen McAuliffe, including journalists and artists, but this was stopped after the disaster. Kristen McAuliffe's backup in the Teacher in Space program actually became a regular NASA astronaut and flew to space in 2007. There had even been a plan to send Big Bird to space, but the suit didn't fit. A report found that the news of only two events had spread to the public faster than news of the Challenger, the assassination of JFK and the death of FDR. The Challenger remains a major case study on whistleblowing, safety procedure, and group responsibility. It's also been said that the engineers' inability to present their concerns clearly to NASA leadership on the conference call was a major factor worth examining in engineering classes. Bob Eveling, the engineer who had written the HELP memo, never got over his guilt. He told a newspaper in 2016, soon before his death, quote, I think that was one of the mistakes that God made. He shouldn't have picked me for the job. But next time I talk to him, I'm going to ask, why me? You picked a loser, unquote. But the Challenger catastrophe could never be placed on one person's shoulders. It was a group effort and ultimately a group failure and a bitter lesson that ultimately made space travel safer and more cautious in the future. All the Challenger crew members received a posthumous Congressional Space Medal of Honor in 2004. Beyoncé also sparked a controversy in 2013 when she sampled a press conference about the disaster in a song, which NASA did not approve of, and she was forced to apologize. I also want to mention that I got to do a mock space mission at the Krista McAuliffe Center in Framingham, Massachusetts when I was a kid, and I'll definitely give them some of the credit for inspiring this episode by making me interested in space. The American Space Program got a 17-year break from astronaut deaths until the Columbia disaster in 2003. The Columbia spacecraft had also flown successfully plenty of times before, but this time was different. The commander of the mission was Rick Husband from Texas, Air Force colonel, fighter pilot, and mechanical engineer who had been on one space flight before. The pilot was Navy commander from California, William McCool, who was the youngest man on the crew and had also flown one mission in space. The payload commander was Michael Anderson, an Air Force lieutenant colonel and physicist from Washington State who was managing the mission's science experiments. He had also flown once before in space on the Endeavor. The payload specialist was the first Israeli astronaut, Air Force Colonel Elon Ramon, the son of a Holocaust survivor. And then there were three mission specialists. Kalpana Chawla was an aerospace engineer who had flown one previous mission, and she was the first woman of Indian origin to go to space. David Brown was a Navy captain and flight surgeon from Virginia who was also conducting experiments, and he was a Boy Scout. And finally, there was Laurel Blair Salton Clark, another Navy captain and flight surgeon from Wisconsin, working on experiments as well. Her husband, Jonathan, was also a NASA flight surgeon and worked on the panel that reported on the cause of the disaster. The launch took place on January 16th, 2003. The main fuel tank of the ship was covered in a layer of sprayed-on polyurethane insulation foam that would stop ice from forming on the cold tanks. 81 seconds after launch, things went wrong. A chunk of insulation about the size of a suitcase broke off from the fuel tank and hit the wing. This caused a hole about 6 to 10 inches wide, 15 to 25 centimeters. Similarly to the Challenger, 
The foam breaking off was a regular problem that NASA knew about, but didn't address it seriously enough to prevent an accident. This issue, as well as the O-ring issue, was referred to later as a, quote, normalization of deviance. NASA noticed that the foam had broken off, but was under the belief that even if this, there was a situation like what happened, it couldn't be fixed in space, so telling the astronauts it happened was useless. NASA official Wayne Hale later said that the director of mission operations, John Harpold, had told him, quote, You know, there's nothing we can do about damage to the thermal protection system. If it had been damaged, it's probably better not to know. I think the crew would rather not know. Don't you think it would be better for them to have a happy, successful flight and die unexpectedly during entry than to stay in orbit, knowing there was nothing to be done until your air ran out, unquote? Which, oh my god, is for sure not the attitude you want from your safety team. Some NASA staff also weren't as concerned about the wing being damaged on a mission before the Columbia incident because they believed that the protection was thicker than it really was. Former NASA astronaut and administrator Charles Bolden said, quote, I spent 14 years in the space program flying, thinking I had this huge mass that was about five or six inches thick on the leading edge of the wing, and to find after Columbia that it was fractions of an inch thick, and that it wasn't as strong as the fiberglass on your Corvette, that was an eye-opener. And I think for all of us, the best minds I know of in and outside of NASA never envisioned that as a failure mode. Unquote. After the chunk broke off, some members of Mission Control asked for more specific imaging of the possible damage when it happened, but the management team denied the request, as they didn't believe it was serious. They sent Husband and McCool an email, telling them that the foam strike had happened, but saying that it wasn't a problem, writing, quote, We've seen this same phenomenon on several other flights, and there's absolutely no concern for entry, unquote. which they did believe at the time turned out to be terribly wrong. The crew spent a successful two weeks in space, conducting over 80 scientific experiments. Then re-entry began on February 1st, 2003, at 2.30. It was supposed to land safely by 9.16. Husband and McCool guided the ship out of orbit at 8.15, and the ship re-entered the atmosphere at 400,000 feet over the Pacific Ocean. The ship heated up as normal, but then started to show more stress than expected. But this data couldn't be seen until after the crash, similarly to a black box on an airplane. Around 8.53, witnesses on the ground saw debris falling from the ship and a bright streak of light around it. At 8.54, Mission Control first started to notice abnormalities in the temperature data they were receiving. At the same time, there was a bright flash. Around 8.58, a tile from the outside of the ship fell off, and Mission Control realized that the pressure sensors failed. Rick Husband sent the last transmission heard from the ship that said, quote, Roger, uh, and then was cut off. By 8.59, the ship lost all its hydraulic pressure, which caused the ship to start rolling and the crew to lose control of it. The crew tried to regain control, but only had 41 seconds before the ship broke apart in the air. Witnesses could see debris trails above them. The crew cabin was depressurized within a minute, and the crew lost consciousness. All of them were killed when the cabin broke apart after this. A huge boom was heard by ground witnesses at 9.05, and the debris showered over Texas. Search and rescue teams were called, and then mission control locked down, like in the case of Challenger. Did we get, have we gotten any tracking data? We got a blip of tracking data. It was a bad data point slide. 
Uh, we do not believe that uh, was the orbiter. We're in a search pattern with our C-bands at this time. We do not have any valid data at this time. Okay. Any other trackers that we can go to? Let me start talking flight. My navigator. Communications uh, with Columbia were lost at about 8 a.m. Central Time, about the 10, 10 minutes ago. Why you say lock the doors? Copy. Some people in the public initially feared that the Columbia had somehow been hijacked or damaged by terrorists, especially because it involved the first Israeli astronaut. But this was quickly disproved. A review of the incident found that the crew had followed all the proper procedures for emergencies. Some of them weren't properly restrained or wearing all their equipment at the time, at the time of the accident. But their report said this would have only bought them another 30 seconds of survival. President Bush addressed the country at 2 p.m. and called in federal authorities to help with the recovery. He said, My fellow Americans, this day has brought terrible news and great sadness to our country. At 9 o'clock this morning, Mission Control in Houston lost contact with our space shuttle Columbia. A short time later, debris was seen falling from the skies above Texas. The Columbia is lost. There are no survivors. The cause in which they died will continue. Mankind is led into the darkness beyond our world by the inspiration of discovery and the longing to understand. Our journey into space will go on. In the skies today, we saw destruction and tragedy. Yet farther than we can see, there is comfort and hope. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. The same creator who names the stars also knows the names of the seven souls we mourn today. The crew of the shuttle Columbia did not return safely to Earth, yet we can pray that all are safely home. May God bless the grieving families, and may God, may God continue to bless America. The debris from the ship and human body parts were scattered across Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas, much of which was heavily forested. It took 10 days to find all seven bodies. The largest ground search in U.S. history, with thousands of volunteers, was organized to gather parts of the ship. Some volunteers even had to be disinfected from chemicals and radiation from the pieces. Tragically, two search and rescue pilots were killed in a helicopter crash during the search, and three were injured. The only survivors of the Columbia crew was a little group of nematode worms that had been part of the science experiments. A 13-minute video that the crew had made during re-entry also survived. It was normal, with the crew calm and joking around. Mission Control was heard on the tape asking Clark for something, and she asked for an extra minute, to which they responded, chillingly, quote, Don't worry about it. 
You have all the time in the world. Unquote. The video was intended to last until touchdown, but ended four minutes before the ship broke up. Ramon's Ramon's diary was also partially recovered and returned to his family. The accident report criticized NASA's risk assessment and decision-making, specifically that normalization of deviance. Changes were also made to safety harnesses, the time to prepare for re-entry, and to ensure that survival cases in the case of an emergency were fully automatic. The question was also raised of whether NASA could have prevented the accident if they realized the hole was there before the descent sometime during that two-week mission. The report determined that the spaceship could have stayed in space until February 15th, and the ship Atlantis could have launched by February 10th to help rescue the crew. It could also be possible for the crew of Columbia to exit the ship and try to repair the wing themselves, although this would have been risky. But they didn't. All that could be done now was to try and prevent future accidents. President Bush and Laura Bush held a memorial on February 4th, he also granted each astronaut a posthumous Congressional Space Medal of Honor. Brazil also held several large Catholic masses and concerts in tribute that were internationally televised. A memorial was built for the Columbia and Challenger crews at Arlington National Cemetery. On opening day of the 2003 baseball season, seven friends and family members of the crew threw seven simultaneous opening pitches in their honor. The Indian space program dedicated a satellite to Kalpana, who had been born there, and the Columbia Memorial Space Science Learning Center was opened, and the Columbia Memorial Space Science Learning Center was opened on the site of the manufacturing of the Columbia and Challenger ships. In 2005, after another piece of foam had fallen off of the Discovery spaceship, x-rays revealed that the foam had broken up because of thermal expansion. NASA formally apologized to the workers at their Macau assembly facility, who they had blamed for the foam issues up until that point. The most recent space-related death was that of American test pilot Michael Alsbury, who was killed in 2014. Like many of the people we've discussed, he always loved flying, and was an aeronautical engineer and pilot who had been working for the aerospace company Scalid Composites since 2001. He was married to a woman named Michelle Saling, and they had two children. In the years before his death, he had participated in the first powered test flight of the VSS Enterprise spaceship through the private space tourism company Virgin Galactic. On Halloween 2014, 50 years to the day of the first space flight-related death we discussed, Ted Freeman, Alsbury was killed when the VSS Enterprise broke up during the flight and crashed into the Mojave Desert. His co-pilot, Peter Sebald, survived the crash. Alsbury's name was added to the Space Mirror Memorial last year. This was the first private space company death, although unfortunately, likely not the last. The future of space travel is one that we can foresee only with our imaginations. It's inevitable that there will be more accidents and more lives lost, just like there were exploring every other frontier, whether it be the Arctic, the ocean, or the sky. As writer Stuart Atkinson said in the wake of the Columbia disaster, quote, Some say that we should stop exploring space, that the cost in human lives is too great. But Columbia's crew would not have wanted that. We're a curious species, always wanting to know what is over the next hill, around the next corner, on the next island. And we've been that way for thousands of years, unquote. Ellison Onizuka from the Challenger crew also said, quote, Every generation has the obligation to free men's minds for a look at new worlds, to look out from a higher plateau than the last generation, unquote. 
I don't know what our next plateau will be, or what we're going to see from there. All I know is, if I know anything about human beings, we're going to keep climbing. Thank you for listening to Campfire Stories, Astonishing History. If you enjoyed this show, please don't forget to subscribe. If you're listening on a podcast app, I'd love it if you leave a positive review. If you're listening on YouTube, I encourage you to like this video and leave a comment with an idea for another episode or anything else you'd like to say. Have a great rest of your day, campers, and I'll see you back around the campfire soon. interested in starting your own podcast, check out Buzzsprout. I use Buzzsprout to host this show and get listed on all the major podcasting apps, find sponsors, and track statistics. If you sign up with my link, you get a $20 Amazon gift card when you upgrade to a paid plan. Let me know if you make a podcast. I'd love to follow your show. Fiverr is the perfect place to find high-quality freelancers for any budget who do everything from writing and translation design, video editing, tutoring, programming, genealogy, souvenir collecting, and a ton of other incredible services. Check it out using the link in the description to tell them that I sent you. Thank you for supporting the show.